Welcome to Earth Matters, environment and social justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced in the studios of 3CR on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation in Nam, Melbourne, and going out across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Judith Peppard. Today on Earth Matters, we investigate the environmental dimensions of the war on drugs and the international drug prohibition regime. We begin in Colombia, a country famous for dance, gorgeous landscapes and rivers, wonderful people, and the growing of coca crops. We meet Liliana Davalos, an evolutionary biologist, initially from Colombia and now working at Stony Brook University in New York. Liliana tells us how growing coca crops for the international drug market began in Colombia, the impact it's had, and considers what needs to happen to create change. Then to the UK, where we hear from Neil Woods, a former undercover police officer, an author, and member of Law Enforcement Action Partnership, or LEAP as it's commonly called and also a member of the newly established Drug Policy Reform and Environmental Justice Coalition. Neil describes the wealth and power of the multinational illegal drug networks, how whole countries can become corrupted, and how that impacts on the environment, particularly in sensitive ecological areas. We begin in Colombia. I asked Liliana Davalos about the traditional use of coca, Colombia is really interesting in that there is an ancestral use and it's very narrowly limited. Colombia in the last 40 years has just become super heavily urbanized and demographically for a very long time, for centuries, Colombia has been a country populated by descendants of both indigenous peoples and Europeans that came from Spain. And then of course, people who were brought enslaved from Africa as well. There's a demographic mix, but these indigenous populations that have used, so for example, the Alhuacos in the Northern part of the Sierra Nevada, kept their language, they've kept their traditions and they have an ancestral connection to the Oca plant. Colombia differs from the other two coca growing countries because Bolivia and Peru do have a much more common use where you actually can go in the market and you can buy the coca leaf. And that is not a thing that happened in Colombia. You know, like it's it's really interesting because even as I'm saying, telling this story about how these heavily urbanized people don't have a lot of connection, there are still like some kind of connection that's maybe very feeble. So for example, I do know that my own grandmother, right, who herself had been a campesino in the countryside, but during her lifetime, she had to migrate to the city with her children. Her culture and her life changed dramatically from the countryside to that. But she had a little coca bush. But this coca bush, you know, again, wasn't part of the mambeo, which is this chewing of the coca. It wasn't part of that. It was more like she would like make a tea, you know, for cramps, that kind of thing. When you look at Bolivia and Peru, what we see is the persistence through history of their areas of coca growing. This continuity through time of their areas that are growing coca. Colombia, that is not what happened. In the early 2000s, when coca crops were ballooning, the idea was you were going to hit them hard, right? Like with this hammer of the herbicide. And we did. And there's coca crops in pretty much every ecosystem in the country. Liliana Davalos. And I found it fascinating 
that traditional use or ancestral use of coca was not as common in Colombia as in Bolivia and Peru, yet Colombia now is associated with the production of coca. So what happened? Here's Liliana again. From the 1980s onward, traffickers in Colombia became very active in taking the leaves that, that was coming out of Bolivia and Peru, processing it in Colombia and exporting it primarily to the United States. So this is the time when you hear about the big traffickers, you know, you hear about Pablo Escobar, cartels forming. Then the drug war really gets going. And it's the beginning of this tremendous amount of violence that comes in because of the narco-trafficking business. And then later, the United Nations Office on Drug and Crime and other people, you know, the Colombian police and the people who keep track of the statistics start detecting that now there's coca crops growing in the country towards the late 80s, early 90s. And now coca crops that are interspersed in the landscape, having fields that are then put together into coca leaf that are then processed into cocaine. There's nothing, there's no connection to ancestral. So what's happened in Colombia now? has very little to do with the ancestral use of the coca leaf and everything to do with the lucrative international illegal market created by the prohibition of cocaine. In much the same way, the prohibition of alcohol in the U.S. in the 1920s drove the price of illegal alcohol up and gave birth to organized crime syndicates. Going into the 1920s, many people believed banning alcohol would make America more peaceful. They were wrong. Violent murders, widespread corruption, and the dawn of organized crime defined the decade and beyond. Back to Liliana. I wanted to find out more about how she did her undergraduate research in biology. I was educated for my undergraduate in Colombia, and so I would go into forests as biologists. We were interested in the fauna, we were interested in the flora, but I just couldn't help but notice the, the human dimensions of the situation. So places that were natural parks and where you suddenly would find an open field, and maybe the, the open field maybe had some coca plants or maybe some places where you were told you're not supposed to go there. And at the time when I was doing my undergraduate studies, it was also the case that before going out to any field site, you had to ask yourself, you know, is this under control of the government or is this an area where there's some kind of armed conflict risk? You know, what are the risks that you will be facing as a biologist? So already as an undergraduate biologist, I was kind of like very intrigued by like what happens. And I moved to the United States for my graduate degree. I was studying in a university here in New York, and they had all these very, very fancy, you know, uh, theories of conservation. And we would talk with people from international affairs and as students, we were very exposed to people from the UN, the United Nations and conventions and all of that. And they would be talking at this very high level. And I was just very intrigued because we would hear about how conservation was about like delimiting a park or deciding what species were of higher priority. And all the while I was thinking, well, what, what, what do you do if there are gorillas in the area and they have guns? Oh, what, what do you do if there's like, if there are coca crops and you can't go back to your site to, you know, what do you do? So I was, I was this person that had this tremendous contradiction between the theory that I was learning in the classroom and the lived experience that I had. The species of knowledge lived in different universes. Different universes. The study of conservation and the environment. And then what's happening on the ground in Colombia with the war on drugs. Earlier, Liliana referred to the aerial spraying of herbicides to kill coca crops. Glyphosate is the chemical used in the spraying. We all know it because it's found in the product called Roundup used in Australia. 
and Colombia is the only cocoa-producing country in the world to have used glyphosate in this way. In 2015, the World Health Organization raised concerns about glyphosate and its use in the spraying of coca crops, and as a result, the Supreme Court of Colombia and the then-President Juan Manuel Santos banned its use, and the spraying is still discontinued, despite pressure from the United States government. And while the safety of glyphosate remains a topic of debate, with academics tending to describe it as a dangerous chemical and policy-making institutions, often subject to political and industrial influence, less likely to take a firm stance. But people in Colombia who have experienced the sprain are not in doubt. As the sprain occurred from up in the clouds, legal crops are often mistaken as coca crops, and sources of food and income are destroyed and farmers can be in their fields when the sprain is happening as well. And that's resulted in reports of skin problems, eyesight issues, and women have reported miscarriages and other impacts on reproductive health. Are you saying the sprain of the herbicide is exclusive to Colombia? It doesn't happen in the other countries? From the air for the purpose of eradicating coca? Correct. Neither Bolivia nor Peru have experienced this situation where airplanes are spraying herbicide on tiny plots with lots of clouds in areas of armed conflict. This is not a thing that happens in other places. There is a a spatial and a temporal association between aggressive spraying and violence. One thing exacerbates the other. It's very hard to distill all of this because we have to think about frontiers and, and the lawlessness that comes with it. We have this aerial program And why is it coming through the air? It's coming through the air because we can't gain control of the ground. And there's instability on the ground about who controls what. And all of a sudden, we have this program that's deployed to reduce the production of one crop. Not all the other crops, but just the one crop. So it's good news that the sprain stopped in 2015. But an Al Jazeera report posted in 2022 suggests that the United States government wants to bring it back. Farmers in Colombia have had enough. This is Nariño in southwest Colombia, the heart of the coca leaf production in this country. Heraldo has been growing it all his life. He would like to grow other crops, but he says that without government help, it's impossible. I honestly don't want to do this. It brings too many problems. When you grow coca, you are oppressed by the government, by armed groups. But we do it because it's a plant that doesn't need much investment. The amount of land being used to grow coca rose by 52% between 2015 and 2016, according to a UN report. The US says the decision to stop aerial fumigation in 2015 is to blame. The Colombian government says it was time for a different approach. The coca crops in Colombia are there because people pay a lot of money for their cocaine. The trafficking continues to be really strong. Spraying the coca is just like hitting the lowest person in the, you know, like hitting the people who grow it. They're one, visible because we can see them from space because of their crop. Two, hugely powerless. You know, so it's very easy to to say, yeah, this is the link in the chain that we need to break. But we have had, what, 30 odd years of doing the same thing, of trying to pursue that, as opposed to dealing with the trafficking monies. All of that money goes somewhere. 
it gets laundered somewhere. We live in a digital economy where every penny can be traced. How is it that we don't know where all the drug money is? How is it that we don't have a transnational? How is it that instead we find out that money is hiding in this place or the Panama Papers or whatever, right? How is it that we cannot have a handle on those things? And I know that these are big problems. I think a lot of your questions are sort of from the standpoint of how can doing the same thing give us a different result? And I agree with that. But I just want to turn that upside down. The, the whole drug war thing and thinking just about the, the growers. And I want to turn that on its head and think instead about the structure that allows this illegal commerce to be very profitable for a lot of people. And for those monies to just be part of the global economy, just another part of the global economy. Can we go after really powerful people that are doing those things? I don't know, but I don't, I don't, I don't believe that we have tried. Liliana Davalos, an evolutionary biologist, now working at Stony Brook University in New York and originally from Columbia. And coming up next, Neil Woods, a person who is trying to do just that, trace the money and power and influence of the international illegal drug networks. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. And we're looking at the impact of international drug prohibition, commonly known as the war on drugs, on the environment, the damage that's being done, and the action required to stop it. Neil Woods is a former undercover police officer, author, a member of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, or LEAP, and a member of the recently established Drug Policy Reform and Environmental Justice Coalition. I began by asking Neil Woods about the connection between the drug trade and the environment. You know, the environmental movement are very good at identifying uh, multinational companies that are causing environmental harm. But the environmental movement up until very recently, I've not been looking at the companies which are doing much more damage than the legal companies. The multinational corporations that are the illicit drugs trade have no regulation controlling them. None at all. They're not taxed. They're not controlled in any way. It's literally completely run by ruthless gangsters. And uh, this is a big blind spot for the environmental movement. And So you want to really draw people's attention to that connection between organised drug crime and the impact on the environment, which doesn't necessarily get picked up. Because you pointed out in your article that at the COP26 climate conference held in October, November 2021, there was much said about pledging to end deforestation, especially in the vulnerable tropical and subtropical forests. And I got a sense from your paper that, in fact, not much was said, if anything, at COP26 about the impact of the illegal drug trade. Am I right about that? Absolutely. There's no consideration. A colleague of mine attended uh, that COP to challenge on these particular issues. There was no appetite at all to even listen to her points on this. Now, I have to make something really, really clear here, because this is the aha moment. This is what people need to understand. There is, of course, environmental damage by the impact of the drug trade. For example, the waste product from cocaine refinement or the, the desert creating water pumps in Afghanistan for the poppy trade or the, the carcinogenic chemicals from the ephedra plant extraction of ephedra. All of these things, yes, yes, they are things that can damage the environment. However, the point here is not the physical damage by individual aspects of the trade. It's the money. It's the value. It's the corruption caused by the vast wealth. This is at an even conservative estimate. 
the value of this trade is half a trillion worldwide. A very low estimate, in my opinion, of the cocaine trade alone is 100 billion a year, 100 billion dollars a year. What this does is it corrupts, and it is corrupting, entire governments. So at the COP26, the wrong people were at the table to sign that deforestation pledge. We should have had drugs organised crime there. Because the, many of the governments, most of the equatorial governments who actually signed those pledge, they're not in charge of their own backyard. And I'll give you one specific case study or one nation to just look as an example. Guinea, in early 2021, the civilian government in Guinea announced a very radical, for the region, ending of deforestation, committed to the build up to the pledge. A very short time after that declaration, there was a military coup. Within weeks of that military coup happening in September that year, Guinea went up to having the fastest deforestation in the world. And obviously Guinea sits on the equator, so it's a rather an important, like, like all the other rainforests. They've moved to the fastest deforestation. That military coup was backed by drugs, organised crime. It's basically made the Guinea army the biggest drug gang in town. And the reason there is so much corruption and impact from drugs organised crime there is because West Africa is a very important hub for the distribution of cocaine. Wait a minute. Cocaine? West Africa? But of course, Neil's talking about distribution now. These multinational illegal drug networks have a broad reach, and it's also about corruption. Really, it's the scale of the corruption and how the corruption from transnational organised crime has been growing, and very quickly, to the point where, just as an example, the three cartels in Mexico now have a bigger GDP than most West African countries. And what organised crime do when they have disposable income is they will always invest it in corruption because that's the way the drugs market work. The most efficient organised crime gangs are the ones who have the corrupt assets. And these corrupt assets have become much more efficient, more ruthless and better paid. So it became very clear to me by studying the environmental impacts that are increasingly being covered, the environmental impacts of organised crime. So, for example, there are entire papers being produced on how organised crime are diversifying into trading in animal parts to make more money, or they are doing illegal gold mining or illegal fishing. They're investing all this money in all of these peripheral environmental impacts. And it came really into focus for me when I realised that all of these reinvestments are being paid for by the wealth from the illicit drug markets because the money from the illicit drug markets is absolutely vast. It's the fourth biggest trade in the world. It's more powerful than, than even the legitimate big businesses that are destroying the environment. They're, they're even more powerful than, than the oil companies. And that power plays out in different ways. So, you know, it's the drug trade which equips and militarizes these, these gangs, which are killing the environmentalists. These are drug gangs that are doing it. This is drugs organized crime that's just protecting a peripheral part of their business. That's another thing which is not being seen clearly. People are not understanding adequately. They're powerful because of drug prohibition. And the gangs Neil Woods is describing are indeed powerful because of drug prohibition, a failed policy that brought organised crime to the fore in the United States in the 1920s and then to the world by the United Nations and the 1961 Single Convention, and continues in 2023. Prohibition has created the international illegal drug trade. But back to Liliana's question, what about the money? 
the money from the illicit drugs trade is laundered through logging. It's a way of increasing your wealth. So the National Crime Agency in the UK have these documents called the Strategic Assessment into Organised Crime. And they are brilliant documents. They are incredibly well-researched. And they make the point in those strategic assessments that the money, the value in the illicit drug markets is routinely reinvested into other forms of criminality by organised crime. It's routinely reinvested. It's the investment bank for every other crime. It makes all of organised crime possible. What this means in areas of delicate environment, it means that organised crime, they're not caring about the planet. They're not caring about the climate or climate justice. They're just working out where to make, where to double their money and where to launder their money. And so that it's laundered through logging. And of course, once you have blanket corruption of a nation, which you do with the with the value in the illicit drug market, that also makes all other crime easier because you've already corrupted all your assets. So you can get away with any crime you want to because you've you already own the police. So whereas there isn't enough money in logging to corrupt an entire government, you don't need to. You've already done that with the drug trade. Once you've done that, then you can do what the hell you want to that environment. And organised crime are doing what the hell they want because they own the government. So what would happen if the prohibition regime ended tomorrow, if the war on drugs, quote unquote, ended? Well, the, the wealth would be able to go to the, to the nations which control the assets. I mean, the difference would make, mean that Governments are not would no longer be corrupted by the illegal nature of the trade, and governments could be in charge of that trade. Then regulations will come in so that there'll be control about how drugs are produced to protect the environment. But most importantly, then that money, the value from those drug markets, can be used for governments for climate justice and climate adaptation. We know we're going to miss the 1.5 mark. It's going to be hard work to adapt to this climate uh, catastrophe. It's going to be hard work to ensure that we have climate justice for those nations which are going to struggle the most. But taking legal control of the drug trade means at least we can empower governments with good governance to be better funded and not to be corrupted by organised crime. And they can put in place those measures that we need them to do. At the moment, they're not able to do that. I mean, even the example of Brazil, I remember speaking to a member of Greenpeace about this topic uh, just as Lula got re-elected. And I said, look, we're going to lose this because the mafia controls the rainforests. Governments don't. And he was optimistic. He says, no, we know that under Bolsonaro, deforestation went up and we know that under Lula previously it went down. I was a little bit more pessimistic and unfortunately I've been proven right because since Lula has been elected, deforestation in Brazil has gone up. Because since Lula was last in power, he's lost control of his regional governments. In Brazil, it's a different example of corruption. It's not the entire central state that's being corrupted, like in places like Guinea-Bissau. It's the peripheral governance. It's the governance of regions. The mafia owns the Amazon, to put quite simply. And we can't get the mafia to stop deforestation because they're not round the table at the cop. This is what it comes down to. We have a simple choice here, a simple binary choice. We either decide to try and make peace with drugs, organised crime and get them around the table for the sake of their grandchildren, or we take their power away by taking their business away. And it is urgent that we we do this. Taking the power away by legalising all drugs. Now, this is not a new idea. 
the Global Commission on Drug Policies, has been calling for legalization for almost a decade. But for Neil Woods, it's time for drug law reform advocates and environmental advocates to join forces. This is an emerging issue. I'm part of a coalition. We're calling ourselves the Drug Policy Reform and Environmental Justice Coalition. And this is being led by a brilliant woman called Clemmie Jane. She's been working very hard over the last two years to bring allies together, both from the drug law reform movement, but also the environmental movement, to bring the expertise together. Because we have to become one movement. We have to. We have to face the reality of the situation. Clemmie's bringing these people together. Key people uh, in this coalition is uh, there's an academic from Ohio University in the USA called Kendra McSweeney, who has been working on this for a decade with no one listening to her for a long time. And she's produced a huge amount of evidence on, on this topic. We also have academics from Brazil, uh, Colombia. We have people all over the world, you know, speaking to the Drugs Commissioner and Head of the Narcotics Board in Ghana. We are growing, but we need more people from the environmental sector to talk to us, meet with us, and we need the connections, and we need to grow rapidly for the sake of the planet. Neil Woods, author, member of Law Enforcement Action Partnership, or LEAP, and the Drug Policy Reform and Environmental Justice Coalition. We're coming to the end of Earth Matters, and we'd very much like to thank our guests, Liliana Davalos, an evolutionary biologist at Stony Brook University in New York, and Neil Woods from the Drug Policy Reform and Environmental Justice Coalition. And I'll put the link to that on the Earth Matters website if you're interested in following up on their activities. Earth Matters thanks the Community Radio Network for their work in broadcasting today's episode and bringing it to you and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio Station in Nam, Melbourne, and we can be contacted on earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environment and social justice stories. And I'll leave you with a little bit more Colombian music, Louis Towers, with Eliso Enaleo from the album Chapeta Criolla, Volume 1. New African music from Colombia.